All right, well, we are going backwards in the catechism tonight. We're going back to question 106, having already started the exposition of the Lord's Prayer the previous week. So hopefully that doesn't throw anyone off. But this question is more of an introduction to the topic of prayer, along the same lines of question 105 being an introductory question. Uh, Question 105 really was the most basic of questions when it comes to the topic of prayer, but it's an important one. Question 105 asked, what is prayer? On the surface, that's a question that every Christian, every actual Christian, should be able to answer pretty easily. Even for my oldest girls who are not yet professing to be in the new covenant, but are being brought up in the faith, and they're only seven and five, they were able to get there with just a little bit of prompting. Uh, When I asked them, they both said, well, it's praying which is just the action of, of praying. And then with a little prompting, like, you know, well, what is that? They both were able to say, it's just talking to God. And I would imagine even that an adult, probably a teenager or a preteen who isn't a Christian, even if they have little or to no exposure to Christianity, that they would be able to answer the question along the same lines as my oldest girls. Even other religions, which are all false religions, of course, have prayer as a part of their practice. Uh, communicating with God, whether by that we mean the one true and only God or some demon deceiving others, is simply a part of religiosity and religion. And because that is the case, you can have all kinds of evil and all kinds of bad ways of praying. Uh, we see this in false religion all the time, having you know, to be in a certain posture when you pray, having to have like the exact incantation of words or form of words, to have the right smells or appropriate sacrifice before your prayer. You have to face in a certain direction. All sorts of ways that people can go wrong here. And so it's important that we understand what it means to to pray as a Christian. Because Christian prayer is different than than just prayer in religion in general. Because there are false ways of praying And these false ways have a tendency actually of sneaking into the church and into Christian practice. So a few examples, just briefly. If you think of some of the perversions that exist in Christianity today in a Christian culture like ours that we have here in the United States of America, uh, there are are a number of ways in which we see prayer being abused and misused. Uh, The quote, name it and claim it in prosperity gospel movement, was and has been a boil upon the church over years. You might remember learning about, learning about it when we watched the film together, The American Gospel, Fear is Back. And in both of those perversions of the truth, they, they both use and abuse prayer to deceive the masses. Same thing with praying in tongues without an interpreter. That, that's confusing. That's, that's not what we see the Christian practice being. Or even you may have, be aware of these so-called prayer labyrinths, which I've seen a few churches promoting, some constructing them on their church property, and I've seen them in a few community parks and gardens in our state as, as my family's traveled. What that is, if you don't know, is it's a pathway of stones that people set on the ground in the form of a labyrinth, and that supposedly if you walk through it while you're praying, it's some sort of a more powerful way of praying. It is rank mysticism in the church. And, and praise the Lord that we don't hear of this one at all anymore, but it's recent enough for me to mention. Praise the Lord that we don't have people talking about capitalizing on the prayer of Jabez as a model of prayer that God must bless when a person prays it. 
Nothing wrong with Jabez's prayer as it's recorded in Scripture, but it's not intended to be a tool that manipulates God. It's not some mindless mantra that God always answers, chanted for self-advancement, as people have wrongly took it to mean. There's even a book that instructs you how to do that, and it's part of the prosperity gospel and name and enclavement movement. And of course, we should be aware of the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church, Uh, who certainly the saints post the Reformation would have been thinking of when they drafted the Confession and the Catechisms. And so we should think of Rome's rote prayers that are from the mind and don't engage the heart and are simply formulaic and vain repetition. Not to mention that they would often be done in Latin, especially before the 60s, and that was a tongue that most people couldn't even understand. Or praying to saints and offering petitions to them so that these Uh, you know, so-called, quote, saints would intercede for them. And principally even, that is why I think the catechism focuses on the Lord's instruction in prayer, commonly called the Lord's Prayer, because it instructs us to pray to God, to God directly. Not, Not that it's only the Father that we should pray to. Pastor Nick spoke a little bit on the practice of addressing our prayers to the Son and Spirit last week. But the main point, in that is that we are to pray to God. We have direct access to God because of our union with Christ. And so praying to or through people isn't needed and it's not ever commended or recommended. Remember, we have Christ Jesus and the Holy Spirit as interceders and they mediate for us in prayer. And so there's no need to have human mediators, even if they could hear us, which we have no reason to believe that they can And so, what is prayer is an important question to ask. And the answer that that question 105 gives is prayer is an offering up our desires to God by the assistance of the Holy Spirit for things agreeable to His will in the name of Christ, believing with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of His mercies. So faithful Christian prayer is much more than just simply communicating with God or talking with God. Ultimately, that's what it is. But the substance of that communication is specific, and there are what we might call rules to it. This really shouldn't be surprising for us, I would think. Uh, We, as a church body, affirm the RPW, the regulative principle of worship. That is, that God, by his revelation unto us, has explicitly told us how he is wanting to be worshipped. That he in his wisdom, regulates and instructs our worship. We've mentioned this before in our series on on Sunday evening through the Catechism. And prayer, of course, is an act of worship. You, a creature that has been redeemed, is offering up your desires to the Creator with the help of the seal of salvation that has been given to you in your regeneration, the Holy Spirit. And you're communicating with God. That is... That is truly amazing. Prayer is a, is a primary mark of grace. The, the spirit-filled person, the one who truly prays, not selfishly thinking only of their own ends, not because they feel they're trapped and in need of some sort of a, a lifeline, but the person who prays because prayer is the very breath of their lungs, They're seeking God's face in prayer. Only true Christians earnestly seek the face of God in prayer. 
I always think of the account of the Apostle Paul and his conversion. You know, well, Nick happened to mention this this morning even in his sermon. Um, He's ravaging the church one day. He's taking people to prison. He's authorizing their death for the preaching of the gospel, for the preaching of Christ crucified. He's actively looking up those who are promoting the way until Yahweh decides that it's over. He doesn't ask Paul for permission or Paul, Saul, same person. It's, it, there's common to have a dual name at that time. He doesn't ask Paul for permission. Uh, he doesn't ask him to forsake all of his sin if he wants to follow him. He doesn't even ask him to repent or believe. Those things just happen at the moment that God engages Paul on the road to Damascus and he saves him. Now, I know you're aware of all the details, how Paul is blinded and how he converses with the risen Lord Jesus there on the road. But there's an interesting fact that often gets glanced over in all of the grandeur of the, the way that the future apostle is saved. And so this is, this is Acts 9. <coughs> so after the run-in with the Lord on the road to Damascus, his companions end up taking him to Damascus. He's, he's unable to see at this point. He's been blinded. And there he, he gets his whole world flipped upside down and inside out. He's not drinking. He's blind. And God's plan is to confirm his work in Paul through someone else. And so he compels another man, a person named Ananias, to go and find Saul. But that, it's not that simple because this man has a reputation. He's known well for being the bad guy. This is the guy, if you're a Christian, you definitely don't want to run into, and you certainly don't want to seek him out and talk to him about Jesus. He's he's capturing Christians and throwing them in jail or worse. And so God tells Ananias something very interesting to put him at ease, which of course, he still needs more encouragement after this opening discourse from God, but that's a whole other issue. I mean, if you get a vision from God and, and you know that it's actually from God, do you argue with that? I, you don't. It reminds me of Gideon, but that's evidence of the, the flesh that remains. But nevertheless, what God tells Ananias first is not to be overlooked. So Acts 9, 11, and 12. So this is God speaking to Ananias in a vision. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So here is this, here is this man who just four days ago was on the road to Damascus to look for disciples of the way. That's what Christianity was called at that time in that region. And now... He's praying. That's how God describes Saul or Paul to Ananias, this man who was fearful of of Paul. He's seeking the face of the Lord. He's blind. He's blind as a bat. His eyes are covered with what are like scales. He can't see a thing. But the most important thing, he can see that now, that Christ is Lord and Savior. He's no longer blind to that. And he's praying. Prayer is absolutely a means of grace. We've mentioned that before, but it is also a primary mark of grace. A person who has been touched by grace is a praying person. Satan and all of his tricks and all of his deception 
will never compel a professing believer to actually seek the Lord in sincerity. That's why Ananias should have just been like, okay, here, I'll go get him after God revealed to him that Saul was praying. Prayer and a true prayer life begins at the moment a person is saved and it continues on and it continues to grow as the believer is sanctified. Prayer reflects the very essence of a believer's faith. That there's this urge that you just, you just have this urge, this desire to commune with God, to commune with the Lord because the Lord has first communed with you. And that is perhaps the main reason why as to many believers find earnest, believing, persistent prayer to be sometimes a, a very difficult exercise. I don't know if that's been the experience for any of, of you here tonight. I mean, I'm not going to call on any of you to pray right now or something like that. But if I did, would that be something that terrifies you? I know that I've met people that, you know, they, that made them uneasy. And I'm not going to do that tonight. But I'm sure that most all of us have met someone or know someone who, when called upon to pray, they don't want to do it person who says that they're a professing believer and yet they they don't desire to pray now some people take naturally to prayer and you know we'll start praying in public settings settings even almost immediately others are slow to that believing that they can't do it when the reality is that they can but they won't and it's a battle against the flesh and the truth is that a person who is saved and is therefore united to christ God is communing with you already. That's the basis. God is already communing with you. If you are saved, you are united to Christ. God is communing with you. It is a promise, a benefit of the gospel. It is one of those spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that the Apostle Paul mentions. And if you remember from a few weeks back, the person who is saved has the Holy Spirit residing in them, and the Holy Spirit helps in our prayers. Even when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit groans with us and he intercedes for us, Romans 8:26. Because, again, prayer is a mark of grace. Satan may counterfeit some marks, such as belief, but he can't and he won't counterfeit prayer. He won't compel the believer to pray in such a way that the answer to question 105 asserts because he wouldn't desire us to have such communion with the Lord God. His, his goal is to keep people deceived, to think they don't really need prayer, to think that they have it all good and they don't need to depend upon the Lord even. And so I think instinctively, not a natural instinct, just from being made in the image of God, from possessing the Imago Dei, even though it's marred in our fallen condition, but there is a spiritual instinct or a Holy Spirit-wrought desire that exists within the believer for us to pray in a right way, in a way that is in accordance with our communion with God. And God has given to us help, as it were, to pray. But sometimes that desire to pray in the right way might be a stumbling block for someone to actually pray because they have the desire to pray in the right way and they're not sure they can or they will. Again, it's that battle with the flesh. But God has given to us help. Now, there is help for you, Christian, to pray from God. There is help, there is grace to overcome that battle against the flesh that would prevent one from praying. And so question 106 possess, uh, poses the idea of help in light of a greater reality of all of our worship being regulated by God, which is a help, of course, isn't it? We don't, have to, we don't have to worry or guess what God desires in worship. 
There should never be any incidents of strange fire like there were with Aaron's sons in the Pentateuch. And so God has given to us a rule for our direction in prayer. And that's the point of question 106. It simply asks, what rule has God given in direction in prayer? And the answer <coughs> says, the whole word of God is to use to direct us in prayer. But the special rule of direction is that prayer which Christ taught his disciples, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. Now, before we consider the answer, we need to lay a little bit of groundwork and not just assume our Reformed forebearers are correct and even asking the question. We don't want to be guilty of begging the question here. And so the question I would pose first is, do people actually need direction and rule and help in praying? Is that something that is necessary? I've mentioned already that I, I think we can say that there is a spiritual instinct in us because we are spirit-filled to pray in a right and a good way. But do we need help in that? So three things. First, generally speaking, we, we must say yes. If we think of the general tone of the New Testament, especially in the epistles of Paul, Peter, John, and James, they are filled with instruction for how the believer should live and think. The whole second half of Ephesians comes to mind or the, the end section of Romans, which the Reformed have called the gratitude portion as well. A lot of the ink in the New Testament are exhortations of the third use of the law. In other words, it's instruction that tells us not how to be justified or what must we do to be saved or justified, but it tells us how it is that we should live because we have been justified, because we have been saved. That's the third use of the law. Secondly, we understand that we are in a process of sanctification. That is that we are growing and being conformed to the Lord. We don't have it all figured out now. And in this age, we never will. Uh, the, the moment we become a Christian, hopefully we certainly don't think at that moment we don't need any help or any instruction or any assistance. I'm sure there's probably a feeling that comes with being in Christ for a longer period of time where that might creep in, but we should guard against that. That's not a godly virtue. We bring to our practice of religion, our flesh, which is and was opposed to all righteousness. The second London Baptist Confession in chapter 13, which is on sanctification, based on what scripture says, says this, article two says, this, this sanctification instead throughout the whole person Though it is never complete in this life, some corruption remains in every part. From this arises a continual and irreconcilable war with the desires of the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. In other words, meaning that in so much as we have these bodies until Christ comes again or we put off this body and go to heaven, that we are going to struggle against the flesh. We'll be in need of sanctification. There is no perfectionism that we should be promoting in any category. Mm -hmm. And so the reality of that would also simply imply that we need direction, that we need help and rules, even with prayer. But third and lastly, we can from scripture make the case that people need a direction, rules, and help in prayer. This is the view of Benjamin Badome, Matthew Henry, and John Flavel in their commentaries, Flavel. So turn with me to Romans 8. We've mentioned this already, but it bears repeating. It shows that we need instruction if you're still in Acts, just the next book over. <coughs> that we greatly need 
help and rules in this regard. So Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, that's the Apostle Paul speaking. And notice that he's including himself. It helps in our weakness. The, the Apostle Paul, author of 13 New Testament books, understands that he needs the Spirit's help in his weakness, even when it comes to praying. And even he, he doesn't always know what he ought to pray for. That puts us in good company, I think, when we don't know what to pray for or how it is that we should pray. Or we, we might think of the Apostle's personal testimony, even, when he recalls a thorn in his flesh. The issue that he had that he prayed for three times before being given understanding that it was not something that he needed to continue to pray about, but this was going to be something that humbled him and sanctified him. Three times is not even a lot in that sort of scenario, right? I mean, you might pray for something hundreds of times before you come to that sort of a realization even. But we seek the Lord's will in praying. We need help, though. We need a guide. How about James 4, where James, the brother of our Lord, is lamenting worldliness and lamenting worldliness, not in the world, but in the church. Worldliness that is brought about by our own decisions and actions. And he tells them there that they ask and they do not receive because they ask with an evil and selfish motive, James 4, 3. Or maybe if we approach this from a positive angle, turn with me to Psalm 19. One of, I mean, one of my favorite psalms, one of the best psalms, I would say. <laughs> my own personal bias. First, let's note what he says of God's word, all right, and, and its ability, the, the ability of the word of God. He sings its praise, literally. This is a song to be sung. But verse 7. Okay, beginning there. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. And then notice his response. After he said all these wonderful things about God and his word, what it's capable of doing, how it instructs even, how it serves as a guide and directs, Notice his own admission in Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So friends, we, we need help. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. God's word is a help to us, as the psalmist said even before that, to that very end. We need a rule to guide us in prayer. We don't have it all figured out ourselves. 
So consider what our reformed forebearers mentioned in the answer. It's two parts. We'll spend most of our time in the first part. Uh, let me reread the answer again. It says, The whole word of God is of use to direct us in prayer. But the special rule of direction is that prayer which Christ taught his disciples, commonly called the Lord's Prayer. So chiefly, the whole word of God is used in directing our prayers. The whole word of God, from Genesis to Revelation, instructs us how to pray properly, either through example or through precepts, either through telling us what it, what it is that we should do. And so there is a special rule as well that is available to us, and that's the Lord's Prayer. We'll think about that first because I have less to say about the second part. Um, some call it the disciples' prayer because it's Jesus' teaching, dis- teaching the disciples to pray, but it's the model that the Lord gave them. That's why we call it the Lord's Prayer. Not that he needed to pray it himself, right? Because in it, he instructs us to seek forgiveness of our sins, and that is something that Christ never had to do, and something that he never needed. But this is how he shows the disciples how it is that they are to pray. And by the way, there's two accounts of the Lord's Prayer they serve as sufficient evidence that we actually do need a, a rule and guidance in prayer. In, in Luke's giving of the prayer, the disciples see Jesus far off. He's praying by himself and they approach him when he's done and they ask him for instruction on how it is to pray. And this is Luke 11. If you're a note, what happens there? He doesn't at that point turn them away. He doesn't say, hey, you guys already should know how to do this. You're a Christian. It just comes naturally to you. That's not what Jesus says. He offers to them instead guidance and a model by which they can pray. And even that they may use the form of prayer itself. He welcomes their asking for an example of how to pray. And he gives a specific answer. So it's clear we we need that. So four points about this special rule. The Lord's Prayer informs us through and in. Uh, First, we should think of the context. Last week, Pastor Nick pointed out how the context of the Lord's Prayer is best understood in light of private and personal prayer. He spoke of Matthew's account, which is in the Sermon on the Mount. And he first gives, in Jesus that is, in that account, he first gives an example of evil and wrong prayer, and evil and wrong praying, and then he sets up how they should properly pray. And it would seem that our Lord taught this model two times, Because in Luke's telling, it's not during the section of the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel. It's disconnected from that. And it comes again in light of the apostles and the disciples seeking seeking out Jesus after watching him pray and then asking him for instruction on how it is that they should pray. I'm sure they saw him engaged in sincere prayer and that compelled them to want to know how to be of that same mind. And they wanted to learn from him how to pray. So Nick mentioned some of this last week, actually, the context of the prayer, and he prayed to, uh, he paid attention to the aspect of public prayer, that we should draw from it with the plural pronouns that are used in it. But the context of the special rule of prayer is that of private prayer. The things the Lord teaches here are primarily about private prayer. But some churches have been known to use this prayer as a model set forth in public proclamation. And my personal view, at least, this is my own personal view, is that the the rote repetition of this prayer in public is somewhat questionable. Some churches recite this prayer as part of their liturgy, 
And I'm speaking of Reformed churches here. I'm not speaking of Roman Catholics, because of course I would already you know, dismiss them. And while Reformed churches are free to do that, and while it's possible, I think, to pray this prayer with meaning and to be engaged in the heart while praying it, the context of it makes me think that it's a questionable practice for public prayer. We don't want to corporately give someone an opportunity to take something that is so lovely and then treat it as if it's just a thing that we do. And that's different than, say, take the Lord's Supper and doing that weekly, because we can make the case that we are instructed to do that, but we aren't instructed to pray this prayer publicly, weekly, corporately together. If you want to pray this prayer every day privately, I think that if you were engaged in your heart and your mind and you truly meant the words and it wasn't just some rote, empty thing, that would be fine to do. But it's a little questionable in a group setting. Secondly, private, um, this prayer teaches us that prayer is a private matter between the individual and God. Such prayer, if possible, ought to be as private as possible so there are no distractions with other human listeners. There's, there's times for public prayer. We'll get to that. But thinking privately, when it comes to prayer, and, and private prayer especially, we don't want to be like the Pharisee who, who was contrasted with the publican, who made loud, braggadocious prayers to be heard by other people. Or we don't want to be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who, that Jesus spoke of who went to the street corner and to make a big scene of things so that they would be seen, so that they would have attention drawn to themselves. Ideally, the Lord's Prayer teaches us that we should seek privacy so that we can give way to the whole range of words and emotions that are dwelling up in our hearts without any human audience. When one is alone with God in communion with Him, there ought not to be any restrictions or inhibitions. I mean, how many times did our Lord go off and pray by Himself that we read of? Six at least is what I, what I counted, six at least. So private prayer, it's something that is a primary mark of grace. That's when, whenever I'm talking to somebody about baptism or in, in, in church membership, those things going together, I'm interested in knowing what their prayer life is like. Because it's, it's the only time you pray with your family at meals, when you gather with the church, is that, is that it? Because those corporate times of prayer, they're good and they're important and they're necessary. But if you have the Spirit with you, in, in you, and God is communing with you, there should be a desire in you, unprovoked by another person, to be praying to the Lord. Private prayer, and the, and the Lord's Prayer teaches us these things, as we'll see as we um, go through the exposition of it in coming weeks. These next two sections I'm going to be intentionally brief for because we're going to hit on them in coming weeks. But the third thing we see is that our Lord strongly forbids meaningless phrases and empty expressions which do not reveal the true heart of the spirit of prayer and reflect negatively on one's concept of God through this Lord's Prayer. Uh, we are to pray as Christians, not as pagans. One is to pray with a biblical knowledge of God and not with misconceptions and misunderstandings. And fourthly, we are to reflect the character of God. He knows what things we have need of before we ask of him. That implies that our knowledge of God, his nature and character, are to be reflected in our prayers. He who is a true theologian is one who can pray aright. And that brings us nicely to the first part of the answer. Listen, if, if you want 
to be sanctified in your prayer life. If you desire to grow in your ability to pray, invest yourself in the word of God. Prayer, I mean, there could be something to it, practice, the habit of practice in doing it. But if you want to really truly grow in your communing with God, invest yourself in the word of God. We are never going to do as well as we could unless we think God's thoughts after him. And where do we learn of God's thoughts? In his word. And so the catechism instructs us that the whole word of God is to direct us in prayer. Catechism cites uh, 1 John 5.14 as a proof text, which on the surface seems a bit weird to promote the whole Bible as providing direction in prayer. That verse reads, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So that's already kind of a, a, a difficult topic, one that we'll touch on in the exposition of the Lord's Prayer. But the point is this is that all of God's word provides direction in our prayers because it reveals to us his divine will. We want to be people that are aware of the whole counsel of God. We want to be a church that preaches the whole counsel of God because we don't want to think that we know better than God and God has decided to to leave for us these very specific things. That was one of the things that struck me when we were preaching through Judges is here's this time period of 400, 500 years. And here are these very specific events down to some very specific details. Why these details? Because God intended for these specific things to be saved for us. We are to pray so that we would know what God's will is. We're supposed to search the scriptures so that we would know what his will is. And so when we search the scriptures, and we understand what God's will is, our desires begin to align with his will as we come to know him through his word. That's why we can ask things with confidence, knowing that we are asking according to his will, because our prayers are informed by his word, where his will is revealed. Now, just think. Do we look to the stars to know the will of God? Well, what about our hearts? Should we follow our hearts? <laughs> what about our dreams? What about listening to someone who has a, quote, a special word of the Lord for us that, you know, is outside of Scripture? No, no to all of those things. The sure place for us to know the will of God is his word. Now, if we're to consider all the word from Genesis Revelation and what might we glean from it in prayer, we might not have the time in this lifetime to be able to do that. So let me offer a few things that I, that I hope will be helpful. Number one, who and what are we to pray for? Uh, scripture reveals the following. We are to pray for the glory of God, the extension of his kingdom and for his will to be done with, with no opposition or complaint. The Lord's Prayer instructs us in all of that. We should pray for ourselves, the Lord's Prayer again, for our daily needs, the Lord's Prayer again, for forgiveness of sins, the Lord's Prayer again, for other believers, Ephesians 3, 14 to 19, for the cause of Christ, Colossians 4, 3, for the salvation of the unconverted, 
Romans 10.1. For times of revival and renewal and awakening through the Holy Spirit, Acts 3.19. For the success of the gospel and deliverance from the ungodly, 2 Thessalonians 3.1-2. For officials, for rulers, for magistrates, 1 Timothy 2.1-3. And even for our enemies, Matthew 5.44-48. How should we pray? With faith, James 1, 6. With fervency and thankfulness, Philippians 4, 6 through 7. With a view to God's majesty and glory and our own unworthiness, Genesis 18, 27. With persistence, Luke, 15, Luke 5 through 13. And with a humble submission to God's will, 1 John 5, 14 to 15. Prayer itself, is a means by which God sanctifies us. Any work attempted for the cause of Christ, any Christian service which is not sanctified by prayer, necessarily lacks the spiritual quality and character which receives the fullness of divine blessing. Our reading through the Old Testament really shows this. How many times do we see the nation of Israel cursed and under judgment for acting and not first seeking the Lord in prayer? Dozens of times, easily. Much energy is expended and time is consumed without the intended blessing because the will and the face of God have not been carefully and humbly sought through believing prayer and obedience to the revealed will of God. It's noteworthy even that our Lord himself prayed constantly during his earthly ministry, both in private and with his disciples. One time, spent obviously 40 days Uh, praying and fasting. The examples of his prayers are fervent and and intimate, and at the same time, reverent. Think of John 17 and what we call the high priestly prayer. He spent whole nights in prayer, Luke 6, 12. (coughs) And if our Lord, the sinless Son of God, the God-man, the last Adam, the one who always at every moment did the Father's will and pleased him, if he both needed and desired to spend hours alone with his Father in heaven in prayer, how much more do we, weak, feeble, sinful creatures, needing constant grace, mercy, and forgiveness, divine protection, leadership, and the sustaining ministry of the Holy Spirit, need it all the more? That's an interesting and sad, or there's an interesting and sad paradox there, I think. Because we are what we are, we often don't do the thing that we need to do and should do. Because if we had had more of the mind of Christ, then we would think to pray all the more, even, to, to be, follow more in the Lord's example. But it's often our flesh that must be the reason that is stopping us and preventing us from doing that very good thing, the very thing that will help us. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so glad for the righteousness of Christ. Because if we were all to be judged by God, by our prayer life, we would all fall hopelessly short. There's not one of us here who prays perfectly, who prays at all the right times, who is fully seeking dependency upon the Lord all the time. But thanks be to God that he sent his son Jesus to 
to be a true man who lived the way that none of us were able to. And so we can be glad that our Lord Jesus Christ lived a perfect prayer life. It should compel us to also pray more and better ourselves. But at the end of the day, we don't have our hope and our ability to to pray and to go to the Lord ourselves. Our great joy and gladness is in the reality that Jesus is who he is. And he exemplified a perfect prayer life. And his righteousness has been a credit to us for the faith that he has given to us. And so we look to what he has said in his word. His word instructs us in how to pray. But we never think that our praying is the means by which God blesses us. We always fall back onto who Christ is and what Christ has done for us in every category that that is available. So that is what I have for us this evening. There are many other things that could be said of prayer, friends, but for the sake of time, I trust I will cover many of these things in the exposition of the Baptist Catechism that we're going to be doing over the next few uh, weeks, month or so, month and a half. But let me, let me I guess let's pray, and then we'll um, take any questions or any comments, okay? Our Father in heaven, we do praise you and thank you for the gift of prayer, to know that we can approach you, uh, your holy throne, with confidence and boldness because of the gospel and its work in our life is such a great joy to us, Lord. And to know that you, the creator of all things, who spoke all things into existence, hears our prayers at all times, knows them, even before our word is on our tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. We're so grateful that you hear us, Lord, and that Christ and the Spirit mediate for us even in our praying and we do ask that you would sanctify our prayer lives lord god that you would help us to grow in our ability to prayer to help us to grow upon our reliance of prayer even give us that same mind that was in even martin luther who prayed that he was so busy that he needed to spend an extra three hours in prayer lord let us Know how weak it is that we are apart from your guiding and from your leading. And so help us to know your word all the more that we might pray in a way that pleases and glorifies you. And help us over these next few weeks to be meek and teachable, Lord, so that you might conform us to Christ. And may your will be done. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, if I could, if you anybody had any questions, I'd... Happy to answer those, or if there is anything um, that I wasn't clear about, happy to try to clear that up. Do you think that the, uh, I don't know why I just kind of slapped me right in the face, but when you were talking about the, the needs that Jesus had, I was, I was grateful that um, you said that, because obviously in the incarnation there's things that, uh, you know, that we have to understand about you know, the humanity of Christ, right? I mean, he had to eat, he had to sleep, he had to do those things. And so, do you think that the need, just the very communication of how the word need itself is used is a contributor to ESS and that debate? Yeah, yeah. So, ESS, eternal subordination of the sun. So there's a, it's a big topic that's being talked about right now, especially like in Reformed Baptist circles, so we're, we're glad that people are thinking about the Lord, but one of the things that we see is that the Son of God, Jesus, in the incarnation, he was a true man, 
And so he needed the Lord. He depended upon him fully and completely, just like every one of us is supposed to, though we don't because of our flesh. And so I'm happy with the same sort of exegesis and interpretation that that we can find all the way back into the early church. And what people have said is that, of course, there is, and this comes down to the doctrine of Christ, that he is one person with two natures. So it's it's similar to the Trinity, but it is um, confused, called a hypostatic union, but it is different than Trinity. And so sometimes in Scripture, we see that there are things which are attributed to his human nature, and other times we see there are things that have to be attributed to his divine nature, but it's appropriate to speak of the son, the person, the individual in that. But if we're going to be careful and not be heretics, we have to understand that, of course, obviously, in his divinity, he doesn't need anything. He's, he, there's you know, the doctrine of aseity. He's self-existent. And that wasn't lost when he, was, when he took on flesh. That's the mystery of the incarnation, even. How the trueness and the fullness of deity was not lost when he took when he assumed a human nature. So eternal subordination of the son would they wouldn't say this openly, but ideally, I mean this is what they would not ideally, but this is what must be drawn if like the logical consequence of it, they would they would must say always that the son always needed the father. But then that would that would declare some sort of a separation in the Godhead, which we don't want to do. Um, so it's a tough issue, but I think, yeah, his, his need, his need to sleep, you know, that's attributed to the fact that he's a true man. It's human well, nature. That, that's helpful, because I think back when you taught the devotion on bring to Alfred, he'd ask that tough question when you were like, well, yeah. you know, the Father you know, and the Son and Spirit are in heaven. It's not like Jesus is just on earth and he like flipped out, but you know, the Bible says that, and I think it's in John 2, no one has ascended into heaven, except he came down from heaven, the Son of Man who is in heaven, right? So yeah. when we pray, like you said, it's being modeled after God himself, and if God himself in the incarnation that needs that, <coughs> who are we not to depend upon God? So you know, I don't mean to take us down that rabbit trail, but it's just helpful to think, you know, about that stuff. So it is, yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of confusion about it right now. I mean, even have, like, James White wanting to say that Jesus in Matthew, I think it's Matthew 14, when he says that he doesn't know the day or the hour of his return, that in some sense the Son of God didn't know at that time. And that is strange. That is... Sometimes what maybe we would call functional Arianism, which, you know, promotes a distinction between the Father and the Son and saying that the Son is a created being, which that's not what Scripture says. And that's not what James is wanting to say even. But these are important to think through. And I think, like, uh, sometimes the logical conclusions we draw from it go a little too far. Uh, I can't, it's... Uh, 1 Corinthians 4 or something. Uh, 
What's the, uh, what is the general feel of it? What does it say? Or it says, uh, sorry, 4-6. Okay. Um, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, uh, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that yeah. if you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. And uh, just to let the word kind of say what it says and, um, and not have to... Sometimes I think we logic ourselves into things that, the, because because we think we can grasp everything about God, we allow what the text. Um, so, like if Jesus Himself says, "No one knows the day or the hour," um, as a man on earth, just to accept it, you know, like it's what the text says. I'm not going to go beyond it. I'm not going to draw some conclusion from it. I'm just going to hear what he said, written down, and, and take my word, so to speak. Um, that that sometimes in the uh, in that, I think we do. We go beyond what is written, and not just let it accept it. The I I understand the the heart behind that. I think that leaves us up to like dealing then with then when we do that there's a potential that we are introducing then apparent contradictions into the, into the Bible, which we don't want to do at the same time either. So I'm thinking of um, Jesus's interaction with Peter after his resurrection and where Jesus is talking to um, Peter and he tells him, you know, three times to feed my sheep. And on the third time, he says... He says, do you, Peter, he says, Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And then he said to him, Peter, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And so, like, does he know everything or does he not know everything? Because at one time he didn't. He didn't. So it's, it's tough. I, I get the, I totally understand the heart about you're coming from saying that. And that's, and it's commendable and right. And the admonishment from, in 1 Corinthians 4 as well, too. The only the, the reason why these even sort of conversations come up is usually it's they're in light of what amounts to heresy or to a path down heresy. And so that's why these things that, yeah, like, I mean, you're right. Like, I, we can't understand the oneness completely between Father, Son, and Spirit. That's outside of our comprehension. We would classify that under the category of doctrine on the incomprehensibility of God. But what we try to do as mere creatures is try to make sense of all of the scripture and we, don't, and we want to guard against parent contradictions because there aren't any. Right. And so, so I think that's where the debate like comes, like gets crisscrossed at least. But gotcha. yeah, I totally appreciate, I mean, I totally I even agree with what you're saying. Like, we don't want to go beyond scripture. It's, oh, so the problem is more like, it's more of a, someone maybe who comes along from the outside and says, brings those two verses to a Christian and says, um, gotcha. gotcha. Gotcha, yeah. You're, look, your Bible is wrong. You can't you know, trust it now. So then, the, so then we have to explain it in light of that. Um, but it, it's, it's tough. I mean, we are dealing with, I mean, Trinity is deep, deep waters. Hypostatic union, deep, deep waters. How much wonderful theology was born from apologetic? requirement you know, we needed to defend the faith and so oh, yeah. that made Maybe us think more deeply but 
but no, I, I think your caution in that is really important. I, I like also what First Corinthians 4 says about how it's divisive. We gotta be careful that it doesn't put us at opposition to true brothers. And so as much as we can, that we should strive for the unity of the church. But part of that unity needs to be as much as we can in thought, too, that we think rightly about the Lord together. So it's, yeah. it's a difficult, delicate balance. Luther, I always think of, I mess with John with this all the time, because John likes to talk about the Lapsarian views. And so I remember Luther would say, I'm going to butcher this quote, but basically... I'm going to hell. <laughs> I basically says, whoever, like... Um, Basically, his point is that if you really want to care and debate about these things that are unknown, that we can't really know exactly because they're not recorded in Scripture, we're just trying to be, in some sense, philosophical and logical. But if we are going to bite and devour each other over this, there's like a special place in hell for those people. But Luther is, uh, he didn't, it's a good thing there wasn't Twitter when Luther was around. Yeah. <laughs> for his sake. Yeah. <laughs> He'd have been banned already. He'd have been canceled. I don't mind calling you all, man. Uh, <laughs> You know, I was going to say, too, just, uh, I understand and I appreciate the spirit of that, too. Just, you know, it's fun to discuss those things, but um, I think we sometimes claim we can know more than we can on areas we shouldn't, and then yeah. we back off of areas that we can know more in. Mm -hmm. And that's where we kind of get messed up at. But just to kind of jump into that conversation a little bit, in Acts 1-8, remember Christ had already rose, <coughs> you know, resurrected, you know, hands, feet. In Acts 1-8 when he said, when they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He didn't say, I don't know, right? Yeah. He said, it's not for you to know times of the seasons that the Father's placed in his hand, choose to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be witnesses to me in um, Jerusalem, Judea, and the ends of the earth. So, you know, I thought it interesting that when those, uh, and I don't always seem like I'm bashing, uh, Van Til, but that was one of the things that always stuck me the wrong way when he came out with this, well, the scripture is paradoxical, and I'm like, no, it's not, there's, the paradox is within us, it's not within the text, it's, 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 it's incumbent upon us to seek the Lord and say, Lord, where am I wrong, not where is your word wrong, or why does it look like there's a contradiction, so, in trying to harmonize all that, like you said, sometimes people are uh, just throwing stones at us with the gotcha, but then there's sometimes believers are just trying to really figure these things out. So it's hard to discern between the two sometimes until people show their true hand, right? Sure, yeah. Yeah, Fred. Yeah, so, um, I mean, I, I'm not sure if the Lord would worse, but doesn't the Bible say that while he was here on earth that he was a little bit lower than the angels? Yeah, so you're thinking of the kenosis, uh, yeah, and, or and, and Philippians 2, where he emptied himself. Yeah, for the time being, and, and so, I mean, it is confusing, but the other thing, too, is, you know, when he says no one knows the time, the day, or the hour, but is he talking that you can't know, or that I know, because only me and the Father know in heaven? Well, he and said, God, even the Son, you know. Just, you know, like John said, you know, what? Uh, has nothing to do with our unbelief. It just means that, you know, we'd like to basically just dig and, you know, sometimes it doesn't really give us the answer. Yeah. Yeah, it's the big debate right now. That, that specific verse, even. Well, we talked about it about a week ago. I think you and I were. I think a simple answer would be, no man knows the day or the hour was, you know, if you came to Jesus and asked someone when he was on earth, hey, what is... Uh, 
you know, Brother uh, Kevin doing in China right now, you know, I think in his humanity, I don't think he would be able to tell you that, you know, maybe he could, I don't know, but I think there was the Philippians 2, when he said, let this mind be in you, it was also in Christ Jesus, who didn't consider robbery to make himself equal of God, but became in the form of a bondservant, so he willingly took on the limitations of human flesh, where he had to eat and sleep and, you know, was obviously veiled, you know, and, and there's going to be things that we don't really understand about that. So, I mean, that's that's the best we can do humanly. I don't know of any other answer. Yeah, well, he, he had to be a man so that he can suffer and die as a man because God can't suffer or die even, right? right? So it was, it was part of the redemption that he was going to have for us. I wonder if you could just kind of speak a little bit more to something that you brought up and talked about a little bit. You were making the point in the course of your sermon that Satan doesn't counterfeit prayer. And I was wondering if you could clarify that a little bit because I think there's a lot of I didn't counterfeiting say, out of, yeah. of like what true prayer is because there's many confusion. Many people are confused, I think, about what true prayer is. That's part of the reason why this is so beneficial to us is the working through the scriptural structures of what prayer is supposed to be. But yeah. What do you mean by when you said that he doesn't, he doesn't make an effort to counterfeit prayer? Well, I, I didn't say counterfeit prayer. I'm trying to look at my notes to see what I specifically said. Because obviously, I mean, there I mentioned even all of the yeah. bad and wrong ways that prayer takes place. But he doesn't ever compel um, compel us to to pray truly. Uh, where he might, where he, I'm trying to think of what I said now because now, of course, now in the in the moment, I'm not thinking of it, um, that Satan might at times um, cause people to be deceived. Some, some, like he might counterfeit belief in us, but he doesn't counterfeit, so I said, so counterfeit prayer. He doesn't compel a believer to pray such a way that the answer to question 105 was asserting. So he might compel us to pray, you know, in a fake way, you know, in a cross, yeah, in, in a way that doesn't, you know, that isn't truly seeking the face yeah. of God. But he doesn't cause people to truly commune. He doesn't, his desire is for us not to commune with God, right? And so prayer is communing with God, my concern yeah. was. And so he's not going to then compel us to, to pray, but he might, you know, can counterfeit belief in us, but he can't counterfeit a, a true prayer life. Whereas, whereas, you know, someone could truly... In their, in their, at least in the way that they profess it, you know, they can quote truly believe. They might be truly believing at a time. They get baptized. They take the Lord's Supper. They're part of a church, but then it stops. So we would say, oh no, they didn't really truly believe. But at that time, it was genuine seeming to us, you know. Yeah. So difference in in prayer being that Satan isn't. He's wanting to keep us from God, not direct us to God, is what I was wanting to say. And prayer brings us to God. She's okay. <coughs> Anything else? People, do you think that people wrestle more with um, God's sovereignty in prayer when it comes to us trying to explain that, I mean, 
if God is sovereign, why pray? I guess I've been listening to some stuff on prayer a lot more. And is that like one of, like in your time, just engaging people, have you come across that's been one of the biggest objections to reform theology? Well, to say it comes up in the, um, yeah, the sovereignty debate or the Calvinism debate. But I, I didn't want to talk about that side because I figure we're going to get that, to that in the exposition yeah. of the prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, why pray that? You know, if God is sovereign, his will is going to be done. But what was, what was the question specifically? Well, I guess what I'm trying to ask is, do you think God prayers more? Like then, I mean, obviously God answers prayer, like really does answer prayer, but it's not changing his mind. Yeah. The more I study in prayer, do you think it's more about us, the same the way we learn and grow in scripture about God's, not just his will, but, known, but us knowing God, him revealing himself more in his will than it is about us just, you know, we always think, oh, well, God answered my prayers, but we don't think how God grew us through that. Do you think prayer is more of a a way, a vehicle of him revealing himself than yeah. it is answering to just both. Well, it's not us changing him, right? right? No, so right. we don't move him, but we're moved in it. So, so yes to your question, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, we talked about that really in question 105 when we talked about praying according to, for things agreeable to his will. Because we're not, we don't pray to seek to move God to align to our wills. We pray having the desire that our wills would be aligned with his. Yeah, I think that when people object to prayer, when they're taught sovereignty because they feel like, oh, what's the point if I can't move God? I think it exposes a wrong view of the way we approach God inherently is that we try to manipulate the Lord or try to get him to do what we want him to do. And that's, and that's not what Christianity is. Christianity is our hearts being conformed to the will of God. So, right. so it's, it, I think it really opens up when somebody does try to push back and be like, well, if God's so sovereign, what's the point of prayer? I was like, well, that's a good question. Let's talk about, <laughs> you know, what's the whole point of our relationship with the Lord? Is it for us to try to get from him what we want or is it for us to come underneath the sovereign authority? And, and, and so that's fundamentally a question that needs to be answered for the Christian today. Yeah. And we talk to people at that point about how God uses means to accomplish his ends. And so, yes, he's sovereign and, He's, his will is going to be done, but he also uses the means of prayer to get it done. We see that really clearly in Revelation with the prayers of the saints that are lifted up to the Lord. And then after that, the judgment of the Lord comes upon, uh, upon the earth. And it's, the, it's the, the prayers of the saints are the means by which God also is acting. So there's this, there's this union between the two things, God's sovereignty and the prayers that we pray, which he even ordains and is bringing about in our life, that he's sanctifying us through and accomplishing his purposes in. So I think of it like this in a plain way. It's on your heart to pray for you know, a person to be saved. Well, keep praying that that person will be saved because often that is how God ordains things to come about. He ordains the end. He also ordains the means. And if it doesn't happen, then obviously you know that it wasn't, uh, you know, a desire from the Lord, but that sort of prayer is something that we should just always assume and hope for, simply for our own, uh, the, simply for this fact that we've been saved, and there was no, you know, good reason why us to, God should have saved us. But 
yeah, we hold those tensions together. God's sovereignty and, and prayer. And we'll, um, I mean, if you think that's why we need a rule to pray, because even in the special rule of the Lord's Prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, that's Jesus' instruction to us is, is telling us that we should be desiring God's will to be done, even so. Well, if we ask anything according to his will here, I just I struggle sometimes <coughs> with, I don't want people to not pray. And then when you tell them that he's sovereign, I know I've had some negative responses, even from Calvinists, where I'm just, who struggle with prayer. And I'm just like, well, I think you're falling into fatalism, not, yeah. you know, sovereign. We don't know the mind of God. We don't know what the end is. And so we, he tells us to pray for people's salvation. So, okay. And so we pray for people's salvation. He tells us to pray for healing for someone. You know, we pray. And I'm not saying, though, that you know, prayer doesn't matter because I mean, there's plenty of examples in the Bible where... You know, oh, quite the contrary. Yeah, we're saying prayer does matter yeah, because, yeah. because God has ordained certain things to happen. Everything that happens happens according to the counsel of his will. Part of that is our praying as well. Yeah. He lines all those things up so that you will pray, right? Yeah. And then, you know, he, he knows what you want before you even ask. I mean, but even still, my, ask, right? yeah. even, even my carnal little brother who doesn't know the Lord understands even a principle where he'll say, you know, he'll just ask you whatever because he's greedily wanting something. But he'll say, you know, closed mouths, closed, closed mouths don't get fed. And there's something even to that if we think about, you know, what the Lord desires us to do. I mean, he, we're supposed to pray with faith. That was one of the things we talked about a couple of weeks ago as well, too. Believing that he'll do it. It's one thing to pray and then, well, I guess the God's not going to really do it anyways. I'm just praying. Like, we should truly believe that he's going to answer our prayers, especially if we're praying according to his will. Yeah, you know. And there's that example of, you know, going to the, your neighbor's house for bread late at night or whatever. So, in Luke. Graves, anything? <laughs> All right, you guys. Well, so next week we'll jump back into the exposition of the Lord's Prayer, the second, or the first, because we did the intro. Our Father in Heaven was last week. This one will be Hallowed Be Your Name. 108. 108. She threw me off called 105. I was like,